3. Working our way through the book of Revelation slowly but uh, surely. And we are looking at these seven churches of Asia Minor. And this evening we are looking at Sardis, the dead church. Let's uh, pray before we get in to our time in God's word this evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for who you are this evening. And we thank you, Lord, that we've been able to sing praises on to your holy name. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you have to say to your church. And um, Lord, there can be uh, no doubt that you're speaking to your church uh, in these portions of scripture that we've read over the past few weeks in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And Lord, you have words of warning, words of comfort. Uh, Lord, there are words of commendation, but also condemnation to be found. And Lord, help us to heed the things that we read. And Lord, help us to learn the lessons that you should be our all in all. That everything we are and everything we do should be uh, based upon you and through you and to you. Uh, For you are above all things. You are the preeminent one. You are the head of the body, the head of the church. You are the captain of our salvation. So Lord, will you help us to just see that and rejoice in that. But also, Lord to be uh, mindful, again, as I've said many times, of the privilege we have to be your church in this age, in this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we come to um, Sardis this evening. This is the fifth church on our uh, journey. Um, So we're making our way round. If you remember, I shared that really this is the postal route. Um, and we're making our way around the churches, and each one of these churches is, is uh, at one time a physical church of real people that are hearing uh, these words for the very first time. And of course, um, I've, I've highlighted, haven't I, each week that when you're fifth in line, you've already heard what's gone four times before you, and there's been a mixture, hasn't there? Um, you know, there's been some really good reports. There's been not some good reports. Well, this evening we come to Sardis. This is our fifth church, like I said. And the city of Sardis was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, which uh, existed up to about 546 BC. Uh, and then it passed under Macedonian control and ultimately Roman control. It became the part of this Roman province of Asia. Um, At one time in its history, it was a city of considerable worth, uh, considerable wealth, um, but it had been crippled because of an earthquake in AD 17. Um, Emperor Tiberius came along and provided substantial uh, financial support for the city's reconstruction, um, and because of that, he was worshipped there as a god. Um, Sardis itself... Um, was a center of woolen cloth and garments. It was known for that. That was a, the source. Uh, um, it was a source of woolen cloth and garments in Sardis. Sardis. In its heyday, Sardis was boasted of its strength and its power. It was um, in a particularly fortified position. So it's, it was on an acropolis. It stood um, about f- uh, 1,500 feet above sea level. Um, on the top of a mountain really the the Timulus range is where it was located on and it had almost perpendicular sides so almost flat uh, cliff edges coming up to that city which meant that there was only really one way in which was a narrow uh, uh, 
path and up into the city. So it was easy to, easy to guard. It was easily fortified. It had that central uh, uh, corridor that traffic was forced down to. So um, as a city, they, they kind of rested in their laurels a little bit, that they were uh, impregnable, that uh, nothing could touch them because of the position they had. And... Uh, History bears out that actually that wasn't the case, that on a number of occasions, as is often found, you know, when you think you're at your safest, you're actually at your most vulnerable. And on a couple of occasions through history, the, the city fell and um, fell badly because of this neglect that they thought they were okay, so they didn't keep watch, they didn't keep guard as they uh, should. Uh, the city also had a, a reputation for living on past glories, uh, a bit like Manchester United, if you're a football fan. They have a reputation for living on past glories. Liverpool was the same for a while, but they're winning things at the minute. Um, but, you know, they had this kind of uh, reputation as a city. So, just building up some of the aspects that they um, kind of had a self-confidence about them. Um, they were in a, in a position as a city, um, geographically and top topologically that um, they were hard to uh, attack and therefore they kind of let their guards down at times and history did tell us that they fell on numerous occasions. So a little bit of background about Sardis. Now what does the Lord have to say about Sardis? Well let's read it Revelation chapter number 3 and we'll read verses 1 to 6. So not too long of a report not like we had last week Thyatira was the longest letter Lord had a lot to deal with there. Um, but here we are, Revelation chapter number 3 and verse number 1. And the word of the Lord says this, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how, hast thou, thou, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come unto thee as a thief, and I will, thou shalt not know that what are I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So here we have uh, the report for Sardis. And I'm sure as they gathered to listen to this letter being read out, they were ready to hear what the Lord had from them. Maybe there was intrepidation amongst the, the congregation they were gathered. What is the Lord going to say? You know, uh, Thyatira's got a bit of a hammer and what are we going to get? And the Lord has a report for them. And, and uh, like I said, it's not as long as the one at Thyatira. But the Lord has some important things to say to this church. Now the name Sardis means uh, escaping ones or those who come out. And that's important because we're going to point this to a period in church history. As I've said, number one, absolutely, these were physical churches, real churches in a real place, in a real location when this was written. 
Number two, it addresses spiritual conditions, different spiritual conditions that we've, we've seen. And the Lord speaks into the heart of the church, what's really going on, and, and deals with it. And then the third thing is, I really do think it points to a picture of church history. We call this the church age. And we've seen, as we've progressed along, we've looked at the uh, uh, early church there in Ephesus that was a drifting church. We moved along to Smyrna, and again, Smyrna was a, was a delightful church. It was a persecuted church, but remember, the Lord didn't have anything bad to say about them. Not one thing. It was a, a message of commendation for them. Then we moved into Pergamum, which was really the divided church. And we looked at how that church and state came along and really is the birth of Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is not in full flight at this point. I want you to understand that Roman Catholicism is an ever-involving teaching doctrine. And when you look down their history, there are things that you maybe think, if it was that important, why did you not know that at the start? But when you look at the history, you'll find doctrines appear and appear and on it goes. And some of the doctrines that we think would be there from the very start are very late doctrines in the life of Roman Catholicism. It's ever evolving. So when we're dealing with Pergamon, this, this, it's the conception of Roman Catholicism where Constantine comes along, he wins this war uh, for power really, and then he has this great idea to merge uh, Roman religion with Christianity because Christianity is flourishing. It's had those ten rulers, Roman rulers, that have persecuted. They have tried to stamp it out. And every time they stop, try to stamp it out, it just flourishes. Diocletian comes along and he wants every Bible burned. And he thinks he's erased all the scriptures. The minute he dies, they dig up, it's said, like 50 or 60 from the very palace that he lived in. Constantine comes along and goes, let's do something different. He wants to win favor for his Reign. And he merges Romanism and what was uh, Christendom, if you like. And, and it becomes easy to become a Christian. And it becomes beneficial to become a Christian. And if you come in line with the state's version of Christianity, that's going to be a benefit for, for, for you. You think, oh, I'm glad we're past those days. No, we're heading full on into those days. Full on into those days. That it's okay to be a Christian as long as it's an acceptable, palatable, state version of what Christianity should look like. It's coming. It's coming. But when we get to Thyatira that we dealt with next week, this is really the main body and thrust of Roman Catholicism through the Dark Ages, keeping the Word of God out of the hands of the common man, having control and having power. And we, we, we dealt with how they did do great works and the Lord commends them on the works and there's no doubt that, that Rome has done tremendous works of charity if you like, it, it, it's synonymous now um, underneath that there's a, a swell of the wickedness of man like there is in every kind of uh, uh, thing that's done um, but really we see Catholicism in its full flow at Pergamon when we get to Sardis this uh, period I absolutely believe this points us to what we'll call uh, the Reformation and and you know we, we, we should know about what happened there it's the birth of Protestantism and the Reformation was it was it was it was you know put its mark down it was it was an absolutely important and needed drive from those within that body that had seen where it had all gone that woke up to the great doctrine that justification is by faith alone and we praise God for those reforms we do. We do. Martin Luther in his thesis in 1517 nailed to the 
church door at Wittenberg. And, and you know, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for that. But these guys weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. And this period, uh, Sardis is referring to, I believe, again, we've got the, the, the name Sardis, escaping ones, those who come out. And that's what happened in the Reformation. They came out. Protestantism was born, but what we're going to look at is the things that they got wrong as well as the things that they got right. And they did get things wrong. They did get things wrong. You know, there's a, there's a movement today that if any um, thing is written by a reformer, then it is almost inspired of God. And that's nonsense. We have to see everything that's outside of Scripture as written of men. Maybe God uses it, maybe God doesn't. But we have to decide, we have to discern for ourselves and, and look at it. You know, as many of the, the, the reformers, you know, if you look at Martin Luther and what he believed about the Jews, it's awful. They're not perfect. They weren't perfect, and neither are we. And we have to understand that. So, if we're looking and we're going down this period of church and the church age, I think this brings us to the Reformation period. That period where those men made that brave stand and paid with their lives, a lot of them, to come out of this movement that had happened and taken people away from the truth of justification by faith alone, which is the essential aspect of the gospel. It's essential. Essential. So now we've got the background of, of Sardis a little bit. What does the Lord have to say about them? Well, firstly, I want to say to you that, again, the Lord uses an introduction. Verse number one, if you look that there in Revelation 3, remember I said that every time the Lord speaks to a church, he references back to um, a, a, a part of the revealing of himself that you find in Revelation 2, or Revelation chapter 1, sorry. And uh, here the Lord says, Unto the angel of the church at Sardis writes these things that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, thy hast the name that livest and art dead. So the Lord introduces himself as the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. When we were looking at this, if you remember, uh, the seven spirits, I think, references back to Isaiah 11, verse 2. And that's the complete, mature ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his perfection, his deity, his omnipotence. Everything points to him as the preeminent one. And then the seven stars, that was interpreted for us in Revelation chapter number 1. And that was the uh, pastors, I believe, or the, it was the angels of the, of the churches that are mentioned. So again, what does the Lord do here? I think really, again, he just once again impresses his authority, his preeminence to those that need to hear this message. That he is the one, the perfect one, the mature one. He is the one that is the preeminent one. He is the one that holds the churches in his hands. I'll sum it up. He is the head of the body. And one of the things that we'll see, and we, we, we will have seen in, in the Protestant movements that come out of the Reformation, is that they start very much with Christ as the head of the body, and then the body starts to take on its own uh, functions and directions. And, and I think here the Lord, obviously knowing that, foreseeing that, lays down, to the church then and to the churches down the ages that he is indeed the head of the body. 
So he really sets the tone from the very start that he is the preeminent one. So let's have a look then together as we've done with the other churches and we'll go through. And first of all, we'll have a look at the commendation. Now, um, this, is, this is a short commendation. Some commentators will say that actually there's no word of commendation to be found about this church. They'll, they'll go down the path that the Lord has nothing good to say about this church. Um, but I can see something. Um, albeit it's not much, but it is something. The Lord says to them, I know thy works, that thou hast a name and thou livest. So it's not much, but it's something. They have a name. So at least they have a name, right? There's something there. Now the Lord caveats that, doesn't he? The name that thou livest and thou art dead. But there was something there originally. There was something there originally. And the Lord says, I know thy works. And what, what that really points me to do is at some point, at some point, they got it right. At some point, they got it right. But things had gone awry. And, and really, this mirrors the city history it, itself and, I think, indeed, the Reformation. And we'll look at that as we go on. So that's the commendation. There's not much to hang on there. So they had a name, at least. But that name was a name that thou livest and aren't dead. What then about the condemnation? Well, we've just said it. You have a name that thou livest, but you're dead. You're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. The world looks at you and sees life. I look at you. You're dead. You're dead inside. And, and really, you know, if you were to look at the, the churches that come out of the Reformation, I'm talking about the main bodies here. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm not saying that this is caveating or, or, or covering every church of the Reformation. It's all the same. You know, you go to different churches. A church could have Baptist over the name, and you can go in and it'd be anything but Baptistic doctrine. You know, I'm not saying. But as a general whole, when you look at these great bodies that come out of the Reformation, you'll find a lot of them now. They have a name... They look like they live us, but when you get inside and you're dealing with spiritual things and you're dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God, you'll find that they're dead inside. You'll find they're dead inside. And, you know, I've been to churches like that. Phenomenal buildings. You know, you, know, you look at them and go, this is awesome, and you get in and, and God's not there. God's not there. Now, again, don't shoot me down. I'm not saying all. Oh, that's not what I mean. But as a general term, a lot of these great Protestant movements that came out of the Reformation, that had a name that they live as, that used to stand for a lot of things, have now fallen for a lot of things. And on the outside, they may look good, but on the inside, dealing with spiritual matters, what the Lord sees, then it's anything but good. It's anything but alive. See, the, the Reformation leaders, they, they, they rejected the, the teaching of salvation by works and, and praise God for that, absolutely. Uh, but they didn't go far enough. They seemed to stop there for a lot of it when you look through their history. And, uh, you know, they, they went on and became state churches. But what did they come out of? State churches. They came out of this marrying of state and church at its fundamental core, which was Roman Catholicism. And they came out of that. But a lot of those movements, 
Yes, justification by faith alone. Again, praise God for that. But they didn't go far enough and they crept back in and those that came out went back in. But only this time it was their own church and state. A church and state that suited them. They became state churches. Calvin tried to set up his own state. A state where he burned believers at the stake. Awful wickedness went on. What happened? They went, they came out, but they didn't keep going. They stopped and, and, and almost they dined out in past successes. If you look at it, you know, when you look at the Reformed churches that get Protestant movements, you don't look at a lot of them now and what they're doing now. You look back to what they did. When they preached the word, stood upon the word, and came out of the state and church. Now you find within a lot of these Protestant movements that they're the leading lights of ecumenicalism. They're the leading lights of going back into Rome. Which is what they came out of. Which is what they escaped from. I mean the Lutheran church, it went on to become a, a state church. Uh, it sought the approval of political leaders because it's easier to operate when the politicians are on your side in England we have the Anglican Church the Church of England and we know how it's involved in, in things Scotland you've got the Presbyterian Church on and on on it goes what corrupted the church at Pergamos followed through the church at Thyatira although the church at Sardis came out and away from that as we look at the church age it ultimately pulled them back in because they came out and they didn't go far enough. They didn't go far enough. And a lot of those Reformation churches, you'll find that the doctrines of Rome that are traditional rather than scriptural are still present and operating. So they came out and they didn't go far enough. And I think the Lord is speaking to that period in church history and he says, I know you've a name that you live us, but when I look, you're dead inside. You're dead inside. Nothing to do with the buildings, nothing to do with the social works, but the spiritual work. Dead. Yeah, I've been in those churches. Like I've said, and I'm sure you, you know, if you're on your holidays anywhere, you know, and I like to look at old church buildings and go in and go around. And, and you know, honestly, uh, when we were down in Spalding, we had a church, um, uh, Church of England, uh, in Crowland. If anybody you've ever been down that way and you want to go and see an old church, go and, go and see Crowland. It was, I think it was, had some form of, of presence um, from about 700 AD, something like that. Um, very, very old, very historical. You go into it and, um, you know, a lot of it has, has been in disrepair. But there's other parts that are nice, it's beautiful. You go in, people come from miles to see it. And you walk inside and honestly, there is... Just a feeling of no presence of God whatsoever. And I don't mean that to be damning. It's a tourist attraction. It's a tourist attraction. And actually you go down, and, and if you're into this type of stuff, um, if you go around some of these old church buildings and, and start to look around, and start to put your eyes up and, and across, and this is not Roman Catholic churches that have, you know, uh, Mary and all that sort of stuff. These other Protestant denominations have their own idols. You'll find them up and down. In Lincolnshire and all that direction, it was the laughing man, uh, the green man, you call him. 
also called the laughing man, the pagan god. Um, and the you know the the uh, English of the time, this is one of their their gods. So, have you ever seen the Green Man pub or anything like that? When you're going across that type of the the, the place, you'll see it's a, it's a monstrous thing. It's this demonic looking thing, really. Um, and you go into the churches and you'll find it on on the church roofs. When went into this church in Crulan, you go to the sanctuary. You know, if you go there, mark my words, go to the the. You know the, the the front of the church, the pulpit, and look straight up, and you will see it there, looking down. What was that done? It was done to merge things in, and that's in the Protestant side of things. The Reformation it did great things, but it got pulled back in. It got pulled back in, and where there's no spirit, there's no life. I don't care how fancy your building is. I don't care how much heritage you have, how much tradition you have, how long there's been a church there for. If God is not present amongst those people, God is not present. That's the reality of it. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what has to happen for the Lord to be there. So that's the, the condemnation. What about the correction? Again, the Lord gives the correction. Uh, verse number 2, Revelation 3. Lord says, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how this received and heard, hold fast and repent. So the Lord gives a five-fold counsel of correction to this church. And it, we would do well to remember it today. You know, as a church, we're, we're only ever, you know, a generation away from dining out in past glories and letting go of the present. Only ever a generation away. This is why I'm calling for younger people to get involved in the church. We can't go back, look back and say, you know, we've had a successful church here. There's been a presence in Milton, a gospel presence in this church for so many years. We've had so many faithful people. If the people that are there now aren't stepping up, then in a generation or two, there may not even be a church here. There may not even be a church here. Or there may be a church with a building with a few people that really you know, don't know the Lord or love the Lord or just come to church. And they say, well, Milton's been here for a long time. You've a name that you live as, but you're dead. We don't want that to happen, do we? No. Absolutely not. We want the gospel to go out in this community. So the Lord corrects and he gives five-fold counsel of correction. Number one... The Lord says, be watchful, be vigilant. And time and time again, when we get into uh, the New Testament, we are exhorted as believers to be watchful for the Lord's return, to be vigilant, to be uh, waiting for him to return. He could return at any time, I believe, in the doctrine of eminence. And um, we are to be watchful. We're to watch. Now, when we take that exhortation and we read that throughout the New Testament you can look at the references in your own time you know we're to be looking for our blessed hope we're to be watchful to be vigilant for we know not when our Lord will return and, and, and that's, that's a command in us but these churches of the Reformation like I said they, they, they fought a battle on, on um, salvation by grace versus salvation by works and they fought that battle and they came out and, and, and dined upon that and didn't go much further so when you get to 
prophecy. When you get to eschatology, end times teaching, you will find that the reformers are nigh on non-existent in these areas. And I understand they fought the battle on a certain area, but they didn't go far enough. And if they were, they would have been more watchful, I believe. Absolutely. Because when we're not watching for the Lord, what are we watching for? The news. The bank balance. How the husband's feeling. How the wife's feeling. How the children are doing. And the urgency and the imminence disappear. And I preached this morning, didn't I? That we have to know who we are. And part of knowing who we are is knowing that the one who uh, saved us and has redeemed us and given us all those promises could come at any time to take us. And we're to be watchful. We're to be vigilant. And, And the reformers, they weren't really focused on that at all. They weren't watching as they should. And and Sardis is a city you'll find wasn't watching as they should. Because remember I said about their position and how they had that elevated position with those cliff edges that give them a sense of protection, a false sense of security as it were. Um, You know, they became uh, all confident. They became self-confident. They weren't watchful in the one place that they should have been watchful. And as a result of that, their city fell through history. This is what uh, Dr. Thomas from the Master's Seminary wrote. This is a couple of paragraphs about uh, Sardis. He said this, By the middle of the 6th century BC, the city had attained such a high level of respect that when its downfall came at the hands of a little-known enemy, the Greek cities around received the news of it with disbelief. Despite an alleged warning against self-satisfaction by the Greek god whom he consulted, Croesus, king of Lydia, initiated attack on Cyrus, king of Persia, but was soundly defeated. Returning to Sardis to recoup and rebuild his his army for another attack, he was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege to to Sardis. Croesus felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation because he was atop of that Acropolis, 1,500 feet uh, above uh, sea level. And he foresaw an easy victory because the Persians that were coming had to channel down that funnel, as it were, if they were to have any attempt of attack in the city, and that would be easy to defend. So after retiring one evening uh, while the battle was unfolding, He awakened to discover the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by uh, climbing one of the steep walls. This happened in 549 BC. So secure did the Sardians feel that they had left the city, uh, this side of the city, um, completely unguarded. And um, that allowed those that were climbing to ascend uh, unobserved. It's said that even a child could have defended. Uh, from an attack of this type, such was the scale of the wall, wall. But because not one observer had been appointed to watch, the city fell. The city fell and was conquered. History repeated itself over three and a half centuries later when Antiochus the Great conquered Sardis by utilizing the services of a sure-footed mountain climber. This happened uh, 195 BC. They hadn't learn the lesson 
And the Lord says to this church, and he says to the churches of all the ages, be watchful, be watchful, be vigilant. Don't let your guard down in any area of church life because the enemy will exploit it. The enemy will exploit it. So the Lord counsels them. He also counsels them, Revelation 3, verse 2, strengthen the things that remain, the good things that they held to, that great doctrine, if we're looking at the Church of the Reformation, of justification by faith alone. Hold on to that. Strengthen that. Strengthen the teaching on the total depravity of man. Strengthen the teaching on the authority of the Word of God. Those things that the Reformation did well, Strengthen them, and we're to do those things today. We're to do them well, to hold on to these core tenets, the fundamentals of the faith, to not let them go in a world that wants us to let them go. We're to strengthen these things. Be watchful, strengthen. Then the Lord goes on and says, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Return to that place of illumination. Return to that place of blessing. Return to scripture searching. And if you can imagine, if those uh, denominations that we've looked at that have now moved so far away from the Word of God, that have come up with teachings that they think are acceptable to God, that are so far from acceptable to God, if they heard the words of the Lord here and got back to searching the Word of God and got back to the authority of the Word of God, they wouldn't be where they are now. They would turn their corpse. The Lord continues, he says, hold fast, stand upon truth. Don't buckle to the world, don't buckle to the state. And then the Lord says, finally, that word that he said to all the churches that have need of correction, repent, repent, turn back. You've a name that thou livest, you're dead, turn back to me, turn back to the scripture." Turn back to seeking the Lord. Turn back to putting Christ in his rightful place. At the very head of the church. At the center of the church. Every church should be Christocentric. Every church. Should be guided by the head of the church. The one who has the seven spirits of God. The one that has perfect wisdom. Perfect knowledge. The one that has the seven stars in his hands. The one who is the preeminent one. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's the fivefold correction that the Lord gives. Then there's the challenge that comes. If you're not going to heed my words. If you're not going to do what I've asked you to do. Then verse 3. Remember how this received and heard. Hold fast, repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch. I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what are. I will come upon thee. There is a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So here's the Lord's challenge. If you don't watch, I'm going to come. Now, this is not to rapture. This is not to take the church away. This is to judge that church. If you don't fix it, I am going to come. And what the Lord has already said to the other churches, he will take away their light. They are light. Because it is the Lord that builds the church. 
And if he's not there in the midst of the church, the church isn't being built. Some organizations being built, some denominations being built, but it's not the church of God if Christ is not doing the building. He says, if you don't do these things, I'm going to come. I'm going to come, and you'll not be ready for it. Repent, be right, get ready, watch. If not, you'll not see me coming. Then the Lord gives some comfort, as he does with each of the churches. Uh, Verse number 4, Revelation 3. Says thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. There were, as in every one of these churches, there were faithful people that were holding on. There were overcomers. The Lord always has his remnant. Always has his remnant. Each and every period of church history, no matter what the mainstream is doing, the Lord has his people. Those that are born again and redeemed. And those are the overcomers. And the Lord says, those that have not defiled their garments, those that have walked in white. And if you remember, I said about the city of Sardis, one of the things that they were famed for was the production of woolen cloth and garments, particularly white garments. They were known for that. So again, the Lord is using something that they would know, those people here and that, at that time, that city was synonymous with, they would know what the Lord was getting at. And in this city... They were um, uh, one of the types of uh, uh, pagan worship that they were devoted to was um, to uh, this mother goddess. You'll see this a lot throughout paganism, mother goddess. It comes from Babylon, comes all the way back from Nimrod. But regardless, this is one of these break-off cults. It's all manifestation of the same deceiver. But this, this break-off cult, this is the mother goddess Sibylle. And um, it's said of these worshippers that what they would do, one of the ritual worship, worship uh, practices they would do, that they would um, have this kind of pit and above it they would have this uh, grid, this uh, you know, metal grid, and what they would do is these that were going through this ritual would dress in their white garments and they would come and stand underneath this grid in this pit. And then what the priests of this uh, mother goddess cult would do, they would take the bulls and, and, and the, the rams and they would sacrifice them above and then the blood would flow down and it would uh, stain their garments and that was the ritual that these pagans took place in. And that was known throughout the city at the time. So the Lord says to those, the overcomers, now remember, the overcomers are those that are, that are saved. 1 John 5, 4, we've said that every week. And the Lord says, and he, and he uses language that has an impact on these people because they know what's going on in this pagan religion. He said, Thou hast a few names and sorrows which have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The same shall be clothed in white raiment. So there's this 
picture that's going on, that there's a purity to those that are in the Lord Jesus Christ, where the pagan religions are defiling themselves, where, where, the, where the blood is staining, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ washes clean. And that's the difference between pagan religion and the Lord Jesus. The blood doesn't stain you, it cleans you. Washes you white as snow. The garments of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ upon us. And that's comfort for those that are hanging in there at this time, that are standing true. And the Lord goes on and says, I'll not blot out his name out of the book of life, but, but I will confess his name before my Father. I think that's beautiful. Beautiful. To know that when you're in Christ, your name is written in the book of life. Not blotted out. Not blotted out. This is one of the greatest verses, I think, for assurance uh, for those that have lost uh, children in younger, younger years. Because here your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in the book of life when you're born into this world. But it can be blotted out. It can be blotted out. When you get to the age, I believe, of accountability, where you have to stand on your own choices, you don't make the right decision for Christ, he'll blot you out of that book of life. Once you're blotted out, the only way back in, only way back in, is to be an overcomer. How do you be an overcomer? Know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour and he makes you an overcomer. And then he says, I'll not blot out your name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now that's individual, that's personal, that's each and every one that the Lord will confess as his what a comfort that is. What a comfort it was for those uh, hearing that word. Uh, for those of you that have been to Israel, and, and um, I'm not sure those that did the trip with Pastor Moore, I know that those that did the trip with me a couple of years ago, we, we went to Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is a Holocaust museum. Uh, did, we, did we go? Yeah. Okay. And, and it's worth, it's worth uh, you know, if you're ever there, Go on, just just to remind yourself of the atrocity, you know, um, because you didn't go. No, you didn't go. Okay, well, but it's um, it, it it's really a very moving, but it's very it's brutal. It's brutal because sometimes when we go to any kind of um, recount of the Holocaust in any like maybe the British Museum has an exhibition or whatever, they tone it down maybe for a little for for, for the British palate. When you go to Yad Vashem and you spend the time walking through and you have to walk through in a certain way and it takes you through, through it. It, 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 it's horrific. It's horrific. And one of the places is called the, the Hall of Mirrors, I think it, it's called. And, and what they do there, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a big room where you walk in and you go across what seems like a, a, like a little bridge and in the middle there's a, like a centerpiece and you walk towards that and in the, in the centre is one candle and the candle's lit and the whole room round about, you know, I think it's spherical in, in its nature, it has mirrors on it and, and what happens is that the, the way the candle reflects, it looks like there's thousands and thousands of candles in it and it's darkened down and the only light is this candle light and what they do is then as you walk through this, this place, uh, the names of the, the, the children who passed at the hands of the Holocaust are read out. And it's a, it's a voice. Just calls the name out. 
and it goes on and it rolls around name after name after name and it's very moving it's very moving the Lord says there's a time where he's going to do that personally for each and every one of his children where he's going to call your name out before the Father confess your name before the Father and say he is mine not us as a body but as individual Kevin is mine Christine's mine, Alison's mine, Dot's mine, and on and on it goes. What a comfort that is for those believers there, and what a comfort it is for us today. So, Sardis, the dead church, the Lord says you've got a name that you live, but you're dead. Something's wrong inside, and you've got to correct it, you've got to, you've got to fix it. And, and the word of warning for us today is, as we wrap this up and take application, I've said it earlier on, I'll say it again. We have to be on guard. We cannot rest on the things that we're strong at and just let certain areas uh, uh, maybe to the side. You know, this church has always prided itself on being a Bible-based church. But let's not dine out in the fact that we were a Bible-based church. Let's be a Bible-based church. Let's not let that bit of doctrine down. Let's guard it with all that we have. It may be our high wall. But if we don't keep our eyes on it, the enemy will attack it. We don't want to be the dead church. We don't want to be to stand before the Lord and say, you know, you did really well for so long. But what happened? We want to look at these churches of old and and take the warnings that we must not fall to the crowd. We must not come out like they did and then fall back in again because it's easier. Let's learn from the church at Sardis and be the church that we're called to be in the day that we live. Let's pray.